Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Okay, so you're a Pākehā politician in the late 1800s. You've just tipped the balance of power away from tangata whenua into your hands. What are you going to do next? What kind of society do you live in? How do you pay for the roads and railways? What happens if there's a global economic crash? How do you build a nation under the tyranny of distance? And, of course, do you let anyone other than rich white guys have a say in how the government's run? The turn of the century was a hotbed of political infighting, economic crisis, protest and reform. It's in this period that the country becomes known as the social laboratory of the world. In this episode, we're going to dig into all of it. I'm William Ray. I'm Lee Madam McLaughlin. And this is the Aotearoa History Show. We range ourselves without fear beside Britain. Where she goes, we go. Where she stands, we stand. The New Zealander Hillary has succeeded in conquering Mount Everest. New Zealand has been self-governing since 1857, which makes us one of the oldest democracies in the world. But early on in our colonial history, there was a big fight among Pākehā over how New Zealand should be governed. There were two sides, the provincialists and the centralists. The provincialists thought each province should run itself independently, whereas the centralists thought there should be one big central government. For the first 16-odd years of colonial history, Aotearoa was a country of provinces. Each ran their own finances, they built their own roads and schools, they ran independent immigration schemes and police forces. But through the 1860s, the balance of power shifted towards central government. The capital was moved from Auckland to Wellington, and the provinces were brought closer together by a new postal service and roading network. Plus, a depressed economy saw provinces struggling for revenue. One of the leading centralists was a guy called Julius Vogel. Funnily enough, Vogel started his career as a hardcore provincialist in Otago. He'd even argued the North and South Island should become different countries. Some South Islanders still want this to happen. But eventually he changed his mind and switched to support the centralists. Why? Why swap sites? Well, basically because New Zealand needed money. The New Zealand wars had left the government badly in debt and banks would only lend money to a strong central government. 
building a colony is expensive, especially when you're as ambitious as Vogel was. In 1869, Vogel's centralists, led by William Fox, defeated the provincialists. Vogel was made treasurer and promised to borrow £21 million over the next 10 years. That's roughly $3.5 billion in today's money. Vogel didn't actually end up borrowing quite that much, but he got enough to launch what he called the grand go-ahead policy, building roads, bridges, railways and telegraphs. This government spending bolstered a flagging economy. Local factories started building stuff like railway wagons on government contracts. Unemployment fell, average wages rose. It also helped that wool prices were skyrocketing. With the end of the American Civil War, Kiwi-grown wool was no longer undercut by cheap slave-made cotton. The centralists had won the argument. Their new railways and telegraph lines broke down some of the barriers of distance and made central government more workable. In 1876, the provincial governments were officially abolished. By this point, the government owed more than £18 million. But Vogel wasn't worried. The economy was booming. He thought they'd be able to pay back that money soon. But all this money was about to come back to bite us. It was the beginning of the Long Depression. The Long Depression's called Long because it lasted more than 10 years. In 1878, there was an international credit crisis. It was a little bit like the 2008 global financial crash, if you remember that. Banks stopped lending money, demand for goods and services dropped. Before the crash, the New Zealand government had directly employed a lot of people through public work programs. But now there was no money to fund those programs, so the work vanished. Families got desperate. Women and children worked long hours in sweatshops for tiny wages. People sold their wedding rings and tools. Some mothers sewed clothes for their kids from flower bags. Some children even slept on the streets under old sacks. Some colonists sent petitions to Australia and the United States begging for help to leave. One of the petitions said this. We, the undersigned, being in every sense of the word genuine working men, have been miserably betrayed by false representations of New Zealand emigration agents, lecturers and printed pamphlets. We are now facing the bitter reality of parading the streets hungry and ill-shod with no prospect of a better future. The settlers were in shock. They'd come to New Zealand to escape grinding poverty in the UK, but now it had followed them here. Vogel got a lot of the blame for this. People were writing to the newspaper saying he should be strung up by the heels for his lies. Okay, so here's a question. Was it good or bad that the Vogel administration spent so much money on infrastructure? Because, I mean, on one hand, that spending lifted New Zealand out of an economic slump. But on the other hand, it contributed to a much worse economic slump a few years later. But on the other other hand, we still use a lot of that infrastructure today. It's contributed billions upon billions of dollars to the New Zealand economy. But on the other other hand, it helped accelerate the destruction of New Zealand's natural environment. But on the other 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 William. other... Stop. Enough. 
The good news at this point in the story is that a historical hero is on the horizon. A saviour of the New Zealand economy. A champion which beats at you annoyingly when you leave its door open. The fridge! Yeah, fridge! People had experimented transporting meat and dairy overseas using refrigerated ships for a long time, but they were either too expensive or too unreliable, and no one wants unrefrigerated meat being shipped overseas. Uh. That is, until a mega landowner called William Davidson gave it another try. Mm, Davidson looked at these failed experiments, made some improvements and tweaks, and eventually converted a whole ship into a giant sailing refrigerator. That's right, we invented a floating fridge, a freezing frigate, an icy ark. If, <laughs> on the 15th of February 1882, the Dunedin set sail from Port Chalmers with a cargo of nearly 5,000 sheep carcasses, 250 kegs of butter, hare, pheasant, turkey, chicken, and... Ba ba bam! Two thousand two hundred and twenty-six sheep tongues. That's my mm. favourite. It worked perfectly too. The first voyage turned a profit of four thousand seven hundred pounds. The meat export business revolutionised New Zealand's economy. Sheep farmers had a totally new income stream. It used to be that farmers with too many sheep would just drive them off a cliff and into the sea. Now they could sell sheep to the meatworks for money. And those meatworks created thousands of new jobs for unemployed workers. Dairy farms started to become more common too, which opened up another new stream of exports and jobs. Refrigeration pretty much single-handedly saved our economy. It's still really important today too. We export about 100,000 tonnes of chilled meat every year, plus another 800,000 tonnes of butter and cheese. Okay, so economically, we've gone from boom to bust and back to boom again, and that's going to be a bit of a theme in New Zealand's economy. Meanwhile, on the political front, we were also seeing a whole series of changes, and some of the most important changes had to do with elections. New Zealand's first election was in 1853, and from the start, voting rights were based on two things. One, you have to be a man because, you know, patriarchy. Two, you have to be a householder. That first rule's pretty straightforward, but the second one gets a little bit tricky. A householder was someone who either owned or rented a place to live, and that property had to be worth something. It couldn't just be some random tent on a beach. The justification was that this rule ensured voters had a stake in the future of New Zealand. If people owned or rented a home, it suggested they were putting down roots. They weren't just some travelling worker or sailor. But this rule also prevented virtually all Māori men from voting. That's because Māori men didn't own their land privately. They owned it communally as part of their iwi or hapū. This move was at least partly deliberate too. Māori outnumbered Europeans in lots of voting districts and the colonial government didn't want to give those Māori too much political power, particularly given they were still trying to strong-arm Māori into handing over their land. We'll be talking more about that in the next episode. The first change to New Zealand's voting system came when gold was discovered in New Zealand in the 1850s, prompting tons of people to sail here as part of a gold rush. Now, gold miners weren't 
householders, so they couldn't vote. But they still had to pay quite a lot of taxes. And over in Australia, miners had rioted over this injustice. The New Zealand government was worried the same thing might happen here. So in 1860, they granted voting rights to any man with a prospecting or business licence. But that created a new problem. Most of the gold mining was happening in the South Island, which meant the South now had a lot more voters and a lot more political power. People in the North Island weren't happy about that, so in 1867, Parliament set up four special Māori electorates. They granted all Māori men the right to vote for MPs in those electorates. Three of those four new seats were based in the North Island, which dealt with that North-South power imbalance. Plus, there was one more reason to give Māori voting rights. Back in Britain, the authorities were a bit unhappy with the colonial government's confiscation of Māori land and its plans to obtain more land through legislation. Giving Māori seats in Parliament was kind of political cover, because, you know, look, we can't be oppressing the natives, we've given them seats in Parliament. But that only went so far. Based on population numbers, there should have been 15 Māori MPs. Limiting Māori to four seats was a deliberate move to restrict their power. So... In 1889, the property restrictions on voting were completely abolished. Pretty much all men could now vote, Māori and Pākehā, the rich and the poor. And for those Pākehā, the sense of being a citizen of New Zealand was starting to mean something. Britain was still called home, but in 1886, we reached a significant demographic milestone. For the first time, most of the non-Māori people living in New Zealand were actually born here, rather than being immigrants. For most of Aotearoa's pre-colonial history, the term New Zealander was exclusively used to refer to Māori people. Now, that label was starting to be applied to Pākehā too. OK, so we've talked about men getting the right to vote. Now we need to talk about women. But first, we have to talk about alcohol. A significant number of the men who could vote were very heavy drinkers. Alcohol was a big problem in colonial New Zealand. Nearly half of all convictions between 1855 and 1870 were for drunkenness. Heavy drinking seems to go hand in hand with a frontier society. You see very similar concerns in Australia and the United States around the same time. Lots of women and a chunk of men wanted alcohol completely banned. And this political alliance helped New Zealand become the first country in the world where women could vote. One of the leaders of the alcohol prohibition movement was Kate Shepherd. She was the New Zealand head of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Temperance is just an old-timey word meaning no drinking. Kate Shepherd was a powerful public speaker and skilled organiser. She tried to lobby members of the government to restrict the impact of alcohol, but became frustrated when they ignored her concerns. Eventually, Shepherd convinced the Women's Christian Temperance Union that the only way they could succeed was if women won the right to vote. She argued that these new women voters would help elect prohibitionist MPs who could pass laws restricting the sale of alcohol. And alcohol was just part of it. Shepherd and her fellow suffragists argued that women could be a voice for morality in Parliament, cleansing the corruption which many believed had infected New Zealand politics. 
Meanwhile, Māori women like Merite Tai Mangakahia had lobbied for women to vote and stand in Te Kotahitanga, a national Māori parliament. People like Merite Tai Mangakahia argued that Māori women should also have voting rights in the New Zealand parliament, given they owned land just like Māori men. She and other wahine joined forces with the Pākehā suffragists. But the anti-suffragists argued giving women the vote was dangerous. They argued women would be corrupted by the messy business of politics and that women just didn't have the kind of mental strength needed to make tough decisions. These anti-suffragists argued women didn't even want the vote. They said it was just a radical fringe who were stirring up trouble. But that was an argument Kate Shepard knew how to win. She and her fellow activists gathered signatures from women all around the country demanding the vote. The first petition had 9,000 signatures. The next year, they collected nearly twice as many signatures, almost 20,000. Finally, in 1893, they collected 32,000 signatures, almost a quarter of the adult Pākehā women living in New Zealand. When these signatures were all collected, Kate Shepard and her allies taped all the petitions together into a sheet of paper 270 metres long. Then they rolled that sheet of paper down the aisle of Parliament. The male politicians were forced to listen. On September 19th, 1893, New Zealand became the first self-governing country in the world where women could vote. It's one of the greatest moments of our history. A moment where we genuinely led the world. But we still had a chunk of the population who were blocked from voting. Chinese New Zealanders. The gold rushers brought a lot of Chinese miners to New Zealand and the colonial government was not at all happy about that. All through the 1800s, politicians passed laws aimed at stopping more Chinese people from coming to New Zealand. There were poll taxes and reading tests and rules blocking people of Chinese descent from getting pensions. And just keep in mind, these laws didn't just affect Chinese migrants. They often affected Chinese New Zealanders, whose families had lived in this country for multiple generations. Rules which blocked people of Chinese descent being naturalised as New Zealand citizens stayed in force until the 1950s. It was only then that most Chinese Kiwis got the right to vote. Opening up voting to more people in the 1890s went hand in hand with the rise of New Zealand's first organised political party, the Liberal Party. The Liberal Party formed under the leadership of a guy called Richard Seddon, or, as he was better known, King Dick. Not a joke, that was his actual real nickname. Seddon was a gold miner turned West Coast publican turned New Zealand's longest-serving Prime Minister. He won an unmatched five elections, and at the heart was a hardcore populist. Seddon was an ardent supporter of the empire, but saw New Zealanders as better British, given our commitment to egalitarian ideals. He often talked of New Zealand as God's own country. A rough-and-tumble champion of the working class, Seddon and his Liberal Party were heavily supported by workers. Unions had seen a big boost during the Long Depression as they fought for better conditions and pay. 
The support of unions helped the Liberal Party win elections all the way from 1891 to 1912, 21 years. They were the longest serving government in New Zealand history. The Liberals passed laws for shorter working hours and pensions. They cracked down on child labour, reformed tax laws and expanded local industry. These were the sorts of ideas that won New Zealand the reputation as the social laboratory of the world. Seddon and some of his fellow Liberals, though, also whipped up support by demonising non-British migrants, particularly Chinese people. It was the Liberals who passed a lot of those anti-Chinese laws we mentioned earlier. The Liberals' wider goal was to support workers but discourage class conflict. They were particularly keen to avoid huge strikes which were crippling entire industries in the UK and USA, leading to violent government crackdowns. So, in 1894, the Liberals created compulsory arbitration courts, which handled disputes between employers and workers. But in the early 1900s, those courts refused to raise wages to match inflation. Workers' pay stopped keeping pace with the rising costs of food and housing. This made those workers pretty angry, so they started to join a more aggressive organisation, the New Zealand Federation of Labour, the Red Feds. The Red Feds refused to accept the rulings of the arbitration courts. Instead, they got their members to strike illegally, which they hoped would force employers to meet their demands. A lot of Red Fed leaders were full-on revolutionaries. They wanted labour unions to seize power from the capitalist oppressors and finally give true freedom to the working man. But for most New Zealand voters, the revolutionary rhetoric of the Red Feds was a step too far. By this point, another powerful political figure had risen to challenge the Liberal Party, William Massey. He migrated from Northern Ireland in 1870 to become a farmer near Auckland and gradually built a reputation as the de facto spokesman for farmers in his province. Massey rallied nationwide support from farmers and rich businessmen opposed to the Liberals' reforms. Eventually, he bound together a loose coalition of independent Conservative MPs into New Zealand's second formal political party, the Reform Party. Reform campaigned heavily against the socialist policies of the Liberals, but when they finally came to power in 1912, Massey's administration didn't actually undo those policies. Promising to undo big policies and they're not following through is a bit of a theme in New Zealand political history. But reform did launch a major crackdown on the Red Feds. Massey described the far-left unions as, quote, enemies of order, which he felt were deeply threatening to the economic prosperity and social fabric of Aotearoa. And you've got to remember, around this time, there actually were violent socialist revolutions popping up all over the world. The Red Feds responded to Massey's crackdown by launching the biggest strike New Zealand had ever seen, the Great Strike of 1913. 15,000 men walked off the job. The ports of New Zealand's largest cities shut down. Trade ground to a halt, mines closed all over the country. Violent fights broke out between special constables and angry strikers. 
But the Red Feds didn't have the money or the political support to keep these strikes going, and by the end of 1913, they petered out. This was a massive defeat for the Labour movement, but it taught them an important lesson. Most New Zealanders were put off by the hardcore tactics and rhetoric of the Red Feds. They thought workers should win rights through elections and negotiation, not through violence or revolution. The leaders of the early Labour movement took this lesson on board. From now on, they would focus on winning power through politics. Three years after the Great Strike of 1913, those leaders formed the New Zealand Labour Party and began a new era of New Zealand politics. While all this wrangling was going on around voting and economics and politics, there was another huge shift taking place. Aotearoa was being transformed. Huge numbers of Europeans were migrating to the new colony of New Zealand, and there was one thing all those colonists desperately wanted. Land. Next episode, we'll be talking about those colonists and how they got hold of that land. The Aotearoa History Show is a 14-part series made possible by the RNZ New Zealand On Air Digital Innovation Fund. The executive producer is Tim Watkin. It's written and produced by William Ray and co-presented by Lee Marama McLaughlin. The sound engineer is William Saunders and it is directed by Duncan Smith. Historical fact-checking by Basil Keane and the Ministry of Culture and Heritage, especially David Green. Archival audio from Ngā Taonga Sound and Vision a video version of the Aotearoa History Show is available online via the RNZ webpage or on YouTube. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.